I don't know who had more fun, the kids or the grown-ups last week, because the grown-ups got to be kids all week long. But wow, what, a, what an exciting time. Make sure if you're a parent, make sure you say thank you to a, a VBS worker. They devoted all week long, every night of the week, to serve our kids. So uh, I'm so grateful for them. Make sure that you express your appreciation for them, too. All right, well, we're in the book of James. We're going through a series called Faith in the Fire, and several topics keep coming up again and again when it comes to the book of James. He really wants to prepare us for the uh, same like six trials that we are going to face in life. And if you're not going through one of these six now, you're probably not breathing because we all have hardships in life. And the two that we're um, zeroing in on today would be the trial of money, having too little or having too much or whatever, and then time. Um, and we'll see some interesting connections when you put those two together. But I think that we are susceptible of falling into the trap of thinking, boy, if I just had a little more money or a lot more money, my problems would go away. And that is far, 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 far from the truth. If you had a lot more money, things might get worse. You might have more problems. I read recently about a woman named Elizabeth Holmes. We have a picture of her up on screen. She uh, is the CEO of Theranos. And she's learning all about the uncertainty of riches the hard way. She's been called the youngest female self-made billionaire in the world. How'd you like to be called that? Youngest female self-made billionaire in the world. She rode the rocket straight up to the top of the financial pyramid. In 2003, it all started when she dropped out of Stanford at 19 to follow her dream to make a company that actually makes blood testing more affordable and less painful. So people could go in for a blood test and just have to have a finger pricked instead of a whole blood draw, right? And so people like that. And, and so it caught on and there's this big deal with Walgreens that went through. And uh, before she knew it, she was in Time Magazine in um, 2015, listed as one of the top 100 most influential people in the world. In the world. In 2015, Forbes also listed her net worth at $4.7 billion. This is a dropout. $4.7 billion. Then earlier this year, it all began to fall apart. Late last year, the Wall Street Journal ran articles questioning her methods. The government began to investigate. As a result, they just recently, like a month ago, banned her from running or managing clinics for two years because of how she's been managing the company. Forbes just released a, an update on their website on June 1st, 2016, and they revised uh, their estimate of Holmes' net worth from $4. billion to zero, to zero in a year. What does that feel like? She knows what it's like now to lose it all. And you're probably thinking, I never want to know what that would feel like, but guess what? We'll see today in God's Word that we will all soon know exactly what it feels like to be her. Because you will lose it all. Moving on to the next life, you take nothing with you. I took economics once in school. Did you take economics? Hated it. Fell asleep. Got in trouble. I don't play the stock market. But they never taught me this formula. The Bible teaches me this formula. Time, you might want to write this down. Time plus money equals no money. <laughs> Write that one down. Always true. Time plus money 
will eventually equal no more money. How then will you work money into your life? The Word of God focuses us on the rich today. And I tell you, the Bible gives the wicked, unbelieving rich one of the sternest, most scorching rebukes found in all the Bible. But it yells at them to teach us. So let's pray and then we'll hear from God on money. Father, thank you that you have opened your hand and given us everything that we have to enjoy for now. Soon you'll take it all back. Help us to know the true purpose of the money that you have given to us, the stuff you've given to us. Help us to know exactly how to make it work for your kingdom. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Open up to James chapter 5, verse 1. James chapter 5, verse 1. Last week, James was exhorting wealthier Christians on how to know that, hey, their, their time, your time is short. Remember I had the spray bottle up here? <laughs> Little mist, that's you. Life's almost over. Are you getting ready for the next life? Now, he looks to the rich outside the church. It's kind of like he's looking over your heads out the window and shouting at the rich, but he really wants you to hear what he's saying. So it says here in chapter 5, verse 1, Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Weep and howl. Wow. What does that sound like? What does weeping sound like? Can you make a weeping sound? All right, now like upgrade it to to like howl, like, yeah. The rich are not known for sitting around weeping and howling, sniffling, another box of Kleenex, please. James is commanding them. The Bible is commanding them to grab the Kleenex and let the tears flow. Why? Because of the future time, because of the future the miseries that are coming upon you. He does something artfully now. He takes the miseries that are coming and he talks about them as if it's already happened. Your riches have rotted. Your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded. Their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. What would that sound like today? Your portfolio's empty. Your house is worthless. Your job is gone. Your bank account is at zero. It's all gone. Wow. Jot this down. First thing we need to learn about money today is beware the riches of this world. Beware. Based on what he's saying to the unbelievers, we should beware the wealth of this world. We already know from the context in the book of James that there were wicked, filthy, rich people who were not Christians, who were throwing their weight around back then. We know from, from other verses in the book of James that they were arrogant, they were selfish, they were uh, belligerent, they expected special treatment when they showed up to church. And, and we know that some of the true Christians in the church were just we're just wide-eyed, staring and envying these, these rich people, starting to imitate them and, and, and follow their way. They were like hypnotized by them. And they're being warned here to beware. They were oppressing the lower-class church people 
They were actually taking some of the lower class church people to poor to court and stealing their land from them. And, and yet still, when they showed up to church now and then, they expected the best seats in the house, right? Just to, just to bring like, you know, this idea of wicked, filthy, rich people up to our modern day, I thought through maybe a list, a short list of some famous rich people who are known for their bad attitude, selfishness, and I, I made a list. Here's some pictures. Here's one. Uh, this is, that's Mr. Burns. Imagine him showing up to church. Where am I going to sit? Here's another picture. Uh, this is the kind of person who, who is being yelled at here. That's Mr. Krabs. And then here's another one, a throwback here. That's Scrooge. So, so that's the kind of person and the, the filthy heart that is being called out here. Beware the riches of this world. He commands the rich to act like they've lost it all. He's talking to them about the tragic ending that will come to their story. This is supposed to make you and me guard our hearts against sharing in their same fate. Based on what is said about them, why would we envy them? Now, look back at verse 1. It tells them the miseries that are coming. Verse 2, it says, Your riches have rotted, your garments are moth-eaten. Jot this down. Beware the riches of this world, because soon it'll all be gone. Soon all of it'll be gone. Your riches have rotted. That's a general term. Then specifically, it says your clothes are moth-eaten. What a nightmare. Imagine like a celebrity. Imagine like Taylor Swift going to her closet. She's about to go to, to the Grammys, right? She opens it up, and she's got like thrift store clothes in there. Red carpet emergency? What are you wearing, Taylor? Thrift store. Your clothes look terrible. Looks like, like, like there's been like a whole family of moths just eaten away. Yeah. Yeah. That would never happen. Because clothes are a big deal to the wealthy. Always the best, the most expensive. And here, what a horrifying thought. All of your clothes, moth-eaten. Riches to rags. Then it says your silver and gold will corrode. Your gold and silver have corroded. Uh, gold doesn't really rust. So we're not sure what he meant to convey here. Is he saying like even the precious metal that you know is beyond rust, beyond the effects of time, even that's going to rust and go, you know? Or is he saying it wasn't real? Like the gold you thought was real was actually a mixture of, it was fool's gold. And so now you see that you were actually tricked. We're not sure. But the point is, it's not good. When you have something that you thought was precious and imperishable, and suddenly it's sitting in a pile uh, like garbage. The Bible's giving them a guided tour of their own future. Listen, the Bible isn't saying that you might lose everything. If there's a downturn. Uh, the chances of each one of us losing everything that we now enjoy, 100%. Math people, you're like, I'm giving you numbers and formulas today. You're probably going to enjoy that I'm doing that, but you're not going to like the numbers I'm sharing with you. Statistically, you are 100% likely to lose everything you now enjoy in this life. Soon, all of it will be gone. Therefore, are you living for the moment when you will let everything go? coming. They're not. The wicked rich aren't. They're living it up. They're living the dream. We have to beware. Soon all of it will be gone. Then it goes on to say in verse 3, uh, you have laid up treasure in the, get this, last days. Jot this down. The world as we know it will soon end. Soon all of your stuff will be gone. 
and the world itself will be gone because the Bible calls these the era in which we live the last days. The last days. Over time. What, what does last days mean? Well, let me tell you a little bit about what the Bible says about the end times. This looks back to many verses, but one of them could be in Joel chapter 2 where uh, the prophet Joel in the Old Testament says uh, that God will pour out his spirit on all people. Well, that refers to Pentecost. Do you remember when the disciples, after the resurrection of Christ, went outside, the Holy Spirit fell on them like tongues of fire. They began speaking in languages, and that was the great outpouring of God's Spirit on the church. Moses in the Old Testament said, how I wish that God would pour out His Spirit on all of His servants. You know, not all the Old Testament saints got the Holy Spirit, but at Pentecost, God poured out His Spirit. We're so blessed to have the fullness of God in each individual believer today, and that started at Pentecost. That also triggered the church age, the last days. You're living in overtime. From the moment Christ came up, from the moment the Spirit poured out, we're in what the Bible calls the last days. And if that's true, if we believe that we're in the end times, it should show up in the urgency we bring to life. Joel also says that this outpouring of the Spirit that starts the last days happens just before the great and awesome and terrifying day of the Lord. There's coming a day where Christ will return. Trumpet will sound. And all of humanity's hopes will be dashed to pieces. Soon. Jesus says, I'm coming soon. He will come to judge the wicked and save the righteous. If we believe this, it will show up in our finances. Are you living like time is almost up? Or are you living like you have all the time in the world? Your finances can show your faith. You see, the rich here aren't just hoarding selfishly. They're doing it in the last days. Their timing makes it all the worse. I ask myself, what would this be like? Someone who is not just doing something, but they're doing something at the way worst time possible. And I started thinking about, like, what would it be like if uh, you're in a movie theater and you're watching the big climactic finish to a movie, right? And then, bam, the movie ends. And then some guy, just as the end credits start rolling, walks in and sits in front of you with a huge bucket of popcorn. Dude, it's the end of the movie. What are you doing? Or imagine the bottom of the ninth inning, and uh, a baseball player's got to go take the field, and, and you know, they're up by one run. It's the World Series last game, and he grabs a brand new mitt off the shelf and runs out there with some mitt oil. And he's out in the field, you know, squirting it in there and, and starting to work in a brand new mitt. And, uh, you know, and you're like, what are you doing? It's the end of the game. Why do you have a brand new mitt in the end of the game? Or what, what would it be like if a, a pregnant woman went shopping for maternity clothes just after her water broke? What are you doing? It's the end of your pregnancy. See, all three of these people, popcorn guy, baseball player, pregnant woman, are showing shockingly bad clock management skills. It's the end. And they're acting like it's not the end, but the beginning. Hey, your finances can demonstrate, display shockingly bad clock management skills. What are you doing? It's the end. Is that showing? Our spending should prove we believe this world is just about over. All of the vain hopes of humanity will perish. That should show up. Beware the riches of this world. Soon all of it will be gone. The world as we know it 
will soon end. We're in the end. All right, now it goes on to say this. Uh, back in verse, four, or in verse 4, it says, Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. So he's starting to list, like an indictment, the things that they've done. It says, And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. All right, so beware the riches of this world, number one. Number two, write this down. Fear God's judgment on your finances. Fear God's judgment on your finances. When judgment day comes, your financial sins will be listed. And the sins of the rich are listed here. There are three major indictments listed. It says they withheld pay. So there were people working their fields, did the job, and then, and then the rich didn't pay them or paid them much less than they agreed to. Or, so they messed with the contract, didn't pay them. So they weren't paying the wages. And then the second indictment is that they were abundantly selfish. So they didn't give them the money they earned, and they were hoarding it for themselves. So abundantly selfish, withholding pay, and then they were obstructing justice. It says they've condemned and murdered the righteous person. Uh, we find out also back in, chapter, uh, in earlier chapters that they were actually taking the poor to court. It says, are not the rich the ones who are dragging you into court? So they were obstructing the justice of the courts. We're not sure exactly what was going on, but it was probably a mixture of flat out just not paying the workers um, or, or taking land from the workers, like oppressing them, taking them to court, stealing their land, then maybe getting them to work on their own land and then not paying them. Uh, but the point is people are dying, okay? People are dying, either through starvation or being thrown in jail, debtor's prison, we don't know. But these are wicked, filthy rich, and there are Christians who have died and gone to heaven because of their sins, because of their crimes. And James is ticked off. Fear God's judgment on your finances. All of your financial choices will be evaluated in the presence of God. Jot this down. We'll lump these into two groups. God will judge financial corruption and manipulation. He says, Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out. That's an interesting illustration. It's like the money itself that you held back is shouting out against you. So imagine, you know, going into Walgreens. Got to buy myself some Gatorade. I pull out my wallet and I open it up. And suddenly you hear, Help! We've been kidnapped! Like the money, imagine your money literally crying out against you. That's funny. He took us away. We don't belong with you. And it's not just crying out at Walgreens, it's crying out on your trial. Uh, the court would like to call your wallet to the stand. Tell us, uh, tell us how he got you. Tell us where he found you. Oh, that scoundrel! Put him away forever! 
the money you thought would make you happy and secure and wealthy is crying out for your execution. What an image. What a horrifying image to people who love money. They withheld pay. It's crying out. Then, uh, it goes on to say this in verse 4, crying out against you. It says, and the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. So not only is the money crying out, but the employees are crying out. Some scholars think what this means is that the, the former employees who are now dead because of the corruption, they're actually now standing in the presence of God, telling God what you did. Yeah, and then took me to court, and then did, and it's reached the ears of God. There are many names of God used in the Bible. Here, when it says, reached the ears of the Lord of hosts, if you know your Bible, if you know your names of God, what the Lord of hosts is, is the Lord of hosts is God who has a vast army at his command. It's, it's his general name, like God with his army behind him. And the cry of your employees has reached the Lord of hosts. How does God feel about the oppression that the rich smash the poor with? Look out your front window and see God with his army on your front lawn. That's how he feels. That's who you'll meet in judgment. See how this is meant to encourage the Christians who are being oppressed? Don't worry, he's heard it. And he's on it. But do you see how this is meant to convict the wicked rich? You're not getting away with anything. And do you see how the wealthier Christians who are like, oh, going gaga for the wicked, for the wicked rich out there, the Christians are like, oh, if only I could be like them. See how we're being warned? We have to fear God's judgment on our finances because the Lord of hosts hears the cry of those that we manipulate. It also says they condemned and murdered the righteous. They fleeced the poor, used the courts crookedly, maybe stole land. They starved them. And the righteous didn't resist. There, there was nothing in here to say, well, yeah, they kind of deserved it. I mean, they weren't working hard or, you know, they, there was nothing. They, they were completely taken advantage of. Because of this, we have to be careful who we admire financially. Based on the end of their story, why would we envy them? Why would we imitate them? Why would we appease them? And it reminds us of God in James 2, 5-6. It says this, Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich ones the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? So we're warned here about who we envy. God's judgment is coming on our finances and he will judge all corruption and all manipulation. Um, all right, another category of what God's going to judge here comes up in chapter 3, the, or I mean verse 3 of chapter 5. It says, you have laid up treasure in the last days, so they're piling up treasure and then in verse 5, it says, you've lived on the earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You've fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. So write this down. God will judge selfish hoarding. God will judge selfish hoarding. 
So ask ourselves, what was sinful about their income? Well, we know the way they got it was sinful because they took it and it wasn't their money. They stole it. But we also know once they got it, that they just fattened up their selfish hearts with it. So how they used it and managed it and how they stewarded the money. It was all for themselves. And James gives us this hilarious image. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. So imagine that you're a cow. Here's a picture of a cow. Imagine you're a cow. uh, And the boss wants to see you later today. So you're going around to all your cow friends. You're like, boss wants to see me. Don't know why. Ooh, are those nachos? <laughs> What's that? French fries? Mm. Ooh, ice cream. <laughs> well, boss wants to see me. I'll be back. You are fattening yourself up on the day of your slaughter. All right. He is taking a shot at their obesity. All right, let's just point that out. The the rich were literally plumping up. Now, is he just trying to be mean? Is he making a weight joke? No. He's pointing out that what they are doing is they are starving the poor, skin and bones over there, while they fatten themselves for the day of slaughter. Meaning that Their weight will condemn them when they stand next to the people they have starved to death. So that's literally what he's doing, is he's saying that they are showing how crooked they are. But there's also a figurative spiritual truth here, because it says they're fattening their hearts. All right, He is making a crack at their body, but, but their hearts... They're fattening their souls for the day of slaughter. They're spiritually making themselves such a foolish, easy target for judgment. They're unaware of what their money is actually accomplishing. Now, this may be convicting. You might feel like, my goodness, so they're storing up? Does that mean that if I'm storing up money that I'm going to be judged? Like, is it bad to have money? Is it bad to save money? Well, you have to apply the Proverbs to your finances. You Learn throughout the Bible that it's not a bad thing to have money, earn money, make money, save money. In fact, the Bible says that the fool squanders all he has. So it's not that they were saving. It's, it's that what they got all went to themselves. It was all about them. They sinfully got it. They sinfully managed it and selfishly indulged in it in the last days. It's easy to give yourself a checkup financially to see where your heart is at. You can ask yourself the question, do I love money to the neglect of God and others? Do I love money to the neglect of God and others? There's no penny threshold. Like if I say, well, if you earn past this amount, you have a sinful amount of wealth. There's no such thing as a sinful amount of wealth. If there was, by the standards of human history, we would all have a sinful amount of wealth. Uh, I read read that... um, there was a professor, I believe at Berkeley, in the uh, economics department who did a study, and it's, com- it's completely a guess, but based on his best research, he calculated the total global product, GDP, of the world in Jesus' day would be about $15 billion in 1990 dollars, $15 billion total world production, and Bill Gates is worth, what, like $70 billion? 
So like four or five times the world product one man owns today, the amount of money we have in our world is astronomical. You can't say there's a certain amount that once you have this amount, it's a sinful amount. It's not about the amount. It's about the way you get it, and it's about the heart that holds it. Take a good spot check to ask yourself if you are loving money to the neglect of God and others. Three questions. Do you have a written budget? A spending plan proves that you're serious about restraining your selfish spending. No budget means no boundaries. Do you have a written budget? It's a good start. I think a second question you can ask is, do you have a written giving plan? Are you intentional about giving to God first? Having a giving plan shows that your priorities are in order. I think a third question is, do you help others in need? Periodically, do you actually give financially uh, to help people who are in need? And if you do a little heart check here and you say, no written budget, strike one. No giving plan, strike two not helping others, I think you're going to have a lot of explaining to do in God's courtroom. A lot of explaining to do. We live in the wealthiest nation in the history of humanity. Yet sometimes people say, I can't afford to help others. Boy, that's a lie. It really is. It's all about priorities. God will judge selfish hoarding. It's not sinful to make money. It's not sinful to have money. But if we're not reigning in our spending, if we're not helping others, if we're not prioritizing the Lord, I don't think the audit's going to go well on Judgment Day. I'm glad I can applaud our congregation. Every time we've had a financial need as a church, the church has just risen up in, in such a, an awesome way. I mean, when we had to launch the church, we had to raise all this money to just get to service number one, and there were only about 60 of us getting ready to start this church in 2009. And man, all the money came in. It was awesome. Then we had to move to Stag High School and buy all this equipment, and all the money came in. We took up a few benevolence offerings. You know, like the first chance we took up a benevolence offering to help those in need when the economy was really bad, we collected like over $20,000 for people who were in need back then. It lasted like two or three years. It was amazing. And uh, then our boiler broke last winter. You remember that? The boiler broke as we were finishing the building program. Ah. And um, it's all from God, but the sacrifice of God's people really shows that this is a generous congregation. And uh, you're sitting next to people, men and women, who have made sacrifices to help people in need, uh, to help missionaries, to help churches get planted. And that's great that we're there. And I find my heroes, my financial heroes, uh, right in our church. I mean, I love that Mike Kiowski and his family are trying to figure out how to sell his house and everything and move to Romania to spread the gospel. That's his retirement plan. That's heroic. He's not trying to figure out how to sit on a pile of cash for the next 40 years. He's getting to work. I love the Croslands taking their seven kids to the other side of the world to live in uh, PNG and to help people get a Bible in their own language. And they're right now raising money to get back there. You know, they didn't come back like, we're done. We can't believe we did that. What were we thinking? They're like, yeah, we're going back. We're going back. They could have a pretty sweet life here. They're moving over there. I love that Pastor Brandon packed everything up and moved here from San Diego, was with us for several years, and then he went out back to Rochester, New York to plant a church. Do you know what that does financially to a family? Move, move, move. And yet, on mission, 
These are heroes. These are people who are putting their money to work for the kingdom. Hey, beware the riches of this world. Soon it will all be gone. The world as we know it will soon end. Fear God's judgment on your finances. He will judge financial corruption, manipulation, and selfish hoarding. He will judge that. Third, write this down. Be patient while you suffer. Be patient while you suffer. This comes from verse 7, and this is the closeout verse for this week, but it will also be the first verse in next week's sermon. It says, Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. Be patient. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit from the earth, being patient about it till it receives the early and late rains? Like a farmer looking at dirt. This is dirt. Looking at clouds. That patient, he can't hurry up the dirt. Come on. Come on. You have to be as patient as a farmer looking at dirt, knowing that God is going to work on those who are making you suffer. The rich naturally assume God must love them because he's blessed them. So they're doing something right. Yeah, money tells you nothing about how God feels about you. Nothing. How does God react to the oppressed and the violated? When will God right the wrongs against us? Can I trust his justice? Yeah, you're looking at dirt. You're looking at clouds. But in verse 9, it says this. The judge is standing at the door. The judge is standing at the door. You can write that down. Be patient while you suffer. The judge is standing at the door. The primary goal of this text is actually to encourage the oppressed and to warn the wealthy. Justice is coming. A reversal of fortunes will take place. Those who trusted in their riches, sat on a huge heaping pile of of wealth, did nothing with it for the kingdom. Judgment's coming. Every believer has to learn to wait patiently for God's justice when wronged. Every believer must learn that true prosperity is enjoying God's loving presence forever. Listen, God is the sum total and the source of all riches. He is. He's the sum total and he's the source of all riches, which is why we go for him. We don't make money a God. Be cautious, be humble, because money is testing your heart, whether you have too much or too little. I want to close by reading a A summary verse found in 1 Timothy 6 that I think summarizes everything we've heard today. 1 Timothy 6, 17 to 19 says this. As for the rich in this present age, that's you and me, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. Let's all close uh, our eyes and bow our heads, and let's just pray that together as a church.